Welcome to Killing Time, the podcast that explores the darkest moments of our past to shine a light on wider histories. I'm your host, Rebecca Radil, and this episode is The Paper Chase. It's a cold January evening in 1706, and an old man, Nathaniel Powell, is being relentlessly questioned by authorities about a clandestine pamphlet. The then Secretary of State, Robert Harley, is desperate to suppress it. Asked to identify handwriting linked to the text, Powell confesses to recognising it, but claims he can't remember whose hand it belonged to. He's moved into a freezing and damp antechamber while investigations continue and isn't released until midnight. He soon begins to cough up blood before a fever finally snuffs out his life. In this episode, we're travelling back to London during the reign of Queen Anne to tell a fascinating tale of secrets, sedition and censorship. To do so, I'm joined by historian and author Dr Joseph Hone, whose gripping 2020 book, The Paper Chase, has brought this riveting story to light. Joe, thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast today. You are the author of an amazing new book called The Paper Chase. Just for listeners and those that haven't yet purchased your book, could you set the scene and explain the situation in London and England more widely during the early 18th century? Sure. So by the start of the 18th century, we're really, I think, about 50 years into a major structural change in English history. So we're we're kind of slap bang in the middle of Christopher Wren's London, Isaac Newton's London. Um, this is the London that has, has risen from, from the ashes after, after the fire in 1666. Uh, it's a, a London that's at the heart of a global trading empire in this period with the expansion of the, the British Empire. And it's also a London that's fundamentally riven by partisan discord. Uh, so this is called the Age of Party. Um, in lots of historical accounts. We have the Whigs and the Tories jostling for power all through the reign of Queen Anne, which is when the narrative of the paper chase takes place. So I I think it's important for us to to know kind of what these two parties are, are fighting over in this period, because they're major questions that they're trying to answer. On the one hand, you've got questions of power, uh, a monarchy, you know, by what right should a king be a king? By what right should a queen be a queen? And in 1688, we had the Catholic monarch, James II, kicked off the throne by his son-in-law and daughter, William and Mary. And so he's over in France, sitting in an alternative English court. There's split loyalties in England among the Whigs who supported William and Mary. Some of them were ardent Williamites, others were a bit more radical. They thought that William was almost as bad as James was and that he needed to be reformed. Then you've got the Tories who are really just disaffected with all kinds of things in this period. Some of them are Jacobites who are supporting the exiled king, some of them are Williamites. It's chaos, <laughs> really. So so we talk about it as this two-party period, but it's actually, I think, a lot more riven and dynamic than that suggests. So a second big issue that they're fighting over is religion. Okay, so in this period, religion and, and politics are really completely inseparable. You know, if you, if you are somebody who subscribes to the established Church of England, the likelihood is you're going to subscribe to the established state of England too. Um, so you've got Tories who are really ardent in their support for the church, for the the state, um, for the power that a king ought to have. And then you've also got people who are a bit more ecumenical. They're kind of the low church, the dissenters. 
and they tend to side with the Whigs. Their, their church embraces lots of maybe slightly unorthodox views. And the suggestion is that they might sort of subscribe to some unorthodox opinions on politics as well. So so that's the, the kind of two-party system that we find ourselves in that's also a bit more fractured than that two-party system suggests. Well, this is, this gets to the crux of the issue, doesn't it? The blurring of lines between politics and religion and the people involved. And this is the hook of your fantastic book. Let's move on to one of the key players, David Edwards. I want you to tell me how he fits into this story and what propels him into the spotlight um, during this period of time. Sure. I mean, yes, this, this guy, David Edwards, who is... Such an interesting character, but somebody who's almost completely faded from the historical record in many ways. David Edwards was a printer and he was working at a time when the press was opening up in new and exciting ways. Um, If you read an older history book published, say, 50, 60 years ago, you'll often see it asserted that this is the, the period in which the end of censorship occurred that somehow the press was completely liberated from all kinds of laws and restrictions and that's that's not really true the key moment that those older historians kind of latch onto is this the end of the licensing act as it's called in 1694 but actually there were still all kinds of laws controlling the press so if you wanted to print something a bit seditious if you wanted to print something unorthodox that was going to get you into trouble you had to do it in secret. You had to hide your tracks. You had to cover what you were doing. And David Edwards, this printer, was an absolute specialist in that clandestine, under-the-counter kind of book selling that's going on in this period. And it's his specialism in in these seditious, occasionally treasonous books that makes him the go-to printer for Jacobites in particular, but also for high church people, for politicians who wanted to get some covert propaganda outside, and occasionally even for people who are working for, for the government who wanted to just get some get some news out into public without anybody being, being able to trace it back to them. So this guy David Edwards, a really interesting character, but because he was working secretly, he leaves very little trace in conventional historical records. But I think this is so interesting because, as you um, rightly said, this idea of, you know, a a free press existing during this time is complicated. And just putting my geek hat on, I remember from my doing my master's university days when, you know, reading Habermas and the idea of the public sphere and when it evolved. And it's often said that it started in in the late 17th, early 18th century. But there's a big question mark. And I think it's interesting as well to think about the press and the way the printed press kind of exploded in the early 17th century. And throughout that time, you've always had this kind of seditious undertone to it throbbing throughout. And it it's thrown into a sharp spotlight with the emergence of Robert Harley, I think. Could you tell me how he plays, you know, who he is and, and his role in this story? Yeah, I, I, Harley is such an interesting character. I, I mean, it's shocking that there hasn't been some kind of big, luscious biopic about about <laughs> Harley because he was perhaps the most subtle um, and effective and interesting politician of this period. So Harley, Harley comes to prominence during this age of party, as I've described it, but he is to the core a man who is convinced that moderation is the way forward. Not party zeal, but the middle road. And so Harley, alongside two other 
government ministers in the reign of Queen Anne Godolphin, um, who is the, the Lord High Treasurer, slightly older, not quite as politically agile, let's say, as Harley. And the other member of this this triumvirate, Marlborough, who is the, the great general of his generation. Alongside those two, Harley kind of orchestrates this this middle way of government of saying, look, if we if we go down the between the Whigs and the Tories and just pick off enough MPs on either side who are, you know, kind of sympathetic to our way of doing things, then actually we're not going to be controlled by the parties. We're going to be able to do our own thing. And so Harley is this kind of early proponent of coalition government, draws moderate men from across the House of Commons. He's happy working with both dissenters and high churchmen, with Whigs and Tories. And this makes him a pretty controversial figure in his day. He's somebody who's supposed not to have any kind of real principles that he's he holds dear to. Somebody who's, if you listen to his enemies, more interested in power than in principles. Whether or not that's true is another matter, but it's, it's certainly an accusation that people are making. Um, and at the start of Anne's reign, he becomes Speaker of the House of Commons, Secretary of State, and eventually by the end of her reign, he is effectively Britain's first Prime Minister. And then his world collides with David Edwards' world with the publication of a book, well, an infamous, I'll use that word, um, text. Yeah, it's a good word. (laughs) Called The Memorial of the Church of England. Can you tell me about this text and why it was so significant? Sure. I mean, it's not a particularly um, enticing title, is it? But um, The Memorial of the Church of England is an astonishing book. It's about 50 pages long. It's a pamphlet. And it lays a fundamental accusation against the government of the day. It charges Harley, Godolphin and Marlborough, this triumvirate of ministers, of encouraging what it calls a heretic fever lurking in the bowels of the Church of England. In other words, it accuses them of letting the church go to ruin. It accuses them of letting traditional English structures um, of worship, of of being overwhelmed by dissenters. It accuses them of working effectively to to undermine the church, is the word they Mm. use. And, of course, what's the flip side of that accusation is that they're also perhaps working to undermine the queen as well, because you can't undermine the church without also undermining the state in this period. So there's a kind of insidious accusation here against the government. And so, I mean, that Harley can't let this stand. It's far too dangerous. And so he is instigating this chase, effectively, to find out who wrote this memorial, who wrote this pamphlet, and to bring them to justice. Harley is no stranger to using information networks and spies to unravel plots and shape opinion. Coming up, we follow as the investigation heats up. London in 1706 is a city with a population edging towards 600,000. It's a place where people consume news and information like never before, and a veritable melting pot of ideas and opinions. There are close to 75 printing houses in the metropolis at this time. The question is, which one printed the text? More importantly, who wrote it? The level of reward that Harley puts out is astonishing. 
So in this period, if you're a highwayman or, or a thief, you'd normally have about a £40 bounty on your head. The authors of the memorial had £200 on their head. <laughs> wow. And that's the kind of level you see for plotters and schismatics. You know, it's, it's, it's astonishing that it's being put out there for a pamphleteer. It's, well, it just kind of indicates the stakes here and how high they were. I mean, what does, what does this mean for, for Harley's position personally? And then also, what are the potential consequences for the writers of this tract and the people that have published the tract? Which is David Edwards, we yeah. should say. He printed, I should say. It is. And it's, it's, it's David Edwards, but he doesn't put his name on it. So if it wasn't for some other documents, we would have no idea who printed this book. There are some little decorative pieces of type on the title page, which you can trace back to his workshop. But that's the kind of stuff that is done in libraries now rather than done in coffee houses in the early 18th century. Mm. What's at stake? Well, for Harley, his principles of moderate government are at stake. He's not going to be able to hold together an increasingly factious Tory party who have manufactured this pamphlet alongside the Whigs. In other words, this this pamphlet is drawing apart the parties. It's dividing them further and further and further into the extremes. And when that happens, there's no moderate people left. So Harley's entire system of government is being effectively undermined here. What's at stake for the people who wrote it? Well, on the one hand... If they're successful, then perhaps Harley will fall from power. Perhaps their allies will find themselves in those positions in government. Um, so, you know, big stakes on the one hand. But on the other hand, if they get caught, well, some bad things happen to people who get caught. Having written seditious pamphlets in this period, the, the punishment that everyone fears is the pillory, which, you know, is utterly horrific in this period. People died in the pillory fairly often. And I think maybe now we just we don't really understand just how torturous this this punishment could be. You know, you'd you'd be put in the stocks and pelted with stones, with rotten fruit. One pillory victim uh, in in seventeen oh four, William Fuller, he loses his eye. David Edwards, the printer himself, he's been in the pillory on a couple of occasions. Um, so he's a veteran. He knows what's at stake. But you know, bad things are going to happen to the people who wrote this book unless they can keep themselves out of Harley's grasp. I think that's really, really interesting as well, because it's also in their interest to stay under the radar in case, you know, they might want to publish or print some more texts as well. Yeah. And also, I think anonymity can be a really useful tool. You know, if you publish something anonymously, then it could be attributed to the whole party. You know, it's a collective, a collective work. The Memorial of the Church of England was immediately called the Manifesto of the Tory Party in this period. So there's an idea that it's a kind of group book. Whereas if you put somebody's name on the front, all of a sudden you could say, oh, it's just one fringe outlier. And I think anonymity is often still used, you know, even now with politically dangerous works, not just to cover the author's tracks, but also to show that there's a, a kind of body of responsibility going on behind the, the scenes here. OK, so so this text is is out there. It's been printed. It has been published. People are reading it. Being sold on the streets. Sold on the streets. I mean, I love this. Yeah. I love this idea of it just being out there. Anyone able to read it or have it read to them. Let's get on to the hunt for the writers then. And poor old Nathaniel Powell. Can you explain what happened? Well... Nathaniel Powell, again, another of those figures who's, who's not really in the historical record. Um, he was a secretary to a mining company in North Wales, the 
chairman of which was suspected of being complicit in the memorial. And essentially what happens is Harley, he manages to trace trace down David Edwards. He also manages to trace down Mary Edwards, who is David's wife, and she is even more of a veteran of the underground press than David is. And she immediately sets about kind of espionage work for Harley, trying to find out who the authors of this book were. I mean, I won't go into the full details of all the stuff she gets up to, but it's astonishing. And I think she, if anything, is the the standout character of the research. But eventually, through David and Mary, Harley manages to trace down some suspects. He draws them in in January 1706. And he sits down with them in the cockpit buildings in Whitehall. And they are subjected to, let's say, intensive questioning. (laughs) And amazingly, the full records of these these sessions are all in the British Library. They're all in Harley's papers there. And you can see it line by line by line. Harley, his questions are are like knives. They're so sharp and shrewd and to the point. And you can see these people prevaricating and being talked into corners. And one of the people who's called in is this old man, Nathaniel Powell. Now, it's cold. It's January. And Powell's left out in an antechamber outside the interrogation room for a bit too long. It's about 2am by the time he's released. And if we believe the newsletters, two days later, Powell succumbed to a fever that he contracted while he was waiting in those chambers and died. And these newsletters are going around saying that Powell is a martyr for the memorial, is how he's described. This man has died rather than surrender what he knows about the authors of the memorial. Whether or not that's true is is another matter. In fact, what Harley had been doing was showing him samples of handwriting, saying, do you recognise this handwriting? What about this handwriting? What about this handwriting? And each time, Powell prevaricates a little bit. But perhaps there's something that Harley could use here. But of course, the people who support the memorial, they don't like this one bit. Yeah, this Powell, this martyr, has he been driven to his death by Harley? Might there have been foul play? These are the kinds of questions that are circulating. Uh, well, either way, I think we can agree that it's not um, not a great look for Harley. No, it's really not. <laughs> Could you tell me how important this case is in terms of the, the history of the press and suppression of information and ideas? Sure. So the book itself is, is exceptional. Ten years later, still being remembered as one of the most scandalous pamphlets in a generation. And it really manages to kind of set the tone for some of the most vitriolic party propaganda that I think we've ever seen in England for the next five, six years. But in terms of the actual case, the investigation, the detective work that went on, this kind of thing went on all the time. But it's just that we have all the surviving paperwork in this instance. And it's not something that people have ever really investigated before because there's this assumption that none of the paperwork on these investigations survives. But because Harley was an an inveterate hoarder, I mean, he could not let paperwork go. Mm. We've got it all there. All the interrogation documents, all the letters sent by David Edwards and Mary Edwards while they were doing the investigation. We've got Harley's professional spies out on the streets of London reporting back to him. And so what we're able to do is really reconstruct this this case in such detail and then maybe start to extrapolate outwards 
from that to think, okay, well, we know that these spies weren't just operative in this one instance. They were out there all the time. So there's a much bigger history that's still got to be written about investigations into the activities of the underground press in this period. And I think partly the reason that that hasn't been done yet is because of you know, what we were saying earlier on about historians thinking of this as the great age of the public sphere, the great age of freedom of the press, um, the great age of enlightenment with a capital E, right? And actually, there's a much darker side to that. There's a, a really seedy underbelly to the enlightenment. People in masks delivering manuscripts to, to printing houses, people dead dropping pamphlets outside coffee houses. This is the kind of thing that's going on. And it's really exciting, you know? It's such a a great story, this one, and you do shine a light on this history and these hidden worlds in your book, The Paper Chase. Joe, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. What's next? Oh, gosh. Well, I'm working on the big book that I just mentioned then. Oh, well, there you go then. So that's certainly that's the the long term project. But I'm also just starting work now on um, on another trade book, another book aimed at a general audience like the Paper Chase. But this one's about history's most successful ever forger of rare books, who is a, an astonishing character, perhaps only outmatched by the the two young booksellers who managed to track him down and prove his crimes to the world oh well that sounds like another riveting read um joe i can't wait to read that can't wait to read your big tome (laughs) as well thank you so who did write the memorial we know david edwards printed it but the author or authors managed to evade capture although there are and were theories as to who it might be i urge you to read joseph's book to find out more